Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Now, with the 2020 U.S. election cycle already heating up, even though we're only halfway through 2019, free healthcare and free college education are becoming more important issues that are being discussed sort of in the lead up to it, especially in the Democratic Party primary and in some regards, these are pretty big new ideas. In, in other ways, they're kind of same old hat. But we're going to be talking about both of those today, looking into a little bit more detail and asking what would it take exactly for the U.S. to follow some of its Euro- European cousins into the world of more free stuff provided by the government. Yeah, who doesn't like free stuff? But I guess a lot of, a lot of people don't like free stuff, or at least not the idea of free stuff coming from the government. And, you know, the, as, as you see it on the national news and such, the debate goes something like this. Some people can't afford this stuff, and that's bad. The government should pay for it. That's socialism. And that's about it, right? And we go back and forth. No, no, no. Like, rich people, they have a lot of money. They should throw money at this and help people pay for it. And, uh, nope, that's bad. And there's a lot more going on under the hood here, Right. There are questions such as costs. How much would all of this cost? Where would that money come from? And would the government paying for these services, healthcare and education, change the total cost that the United States is facing? Would it change the service level or would it just shift the cost burden from the individual to the taxpayer? So we're going to be looking at the proposals on the table and what's planned to happen to these. What we're not yet going to dive into is the actual drivers of costs in the United States. It's going to require a whole boatload more research that uh, we should probably go into at some point, but you know we haven't yet. So to level set here, ultimately both college or university and healthcare in the United States cost a lot more than they do in a lot of these European nations, these cousins of ours. And the reason isn't necessarily as obvious as we might think. And so as we look at these proposals, we need to think about, you know, to what extent would they make, would they or would they not have U.S. university and healthcare systems looking a lot like those of our European or Canadian cousins or not? Now, before we get into, into the detail of the show today, just a few quick reminders. If you haven't listened to a, uh, recent episodes from us, we will both be at uh, Intelligent Speech Conference 
in New York City on June 29th, being hosted by the Agora Podcast Network, as will Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions and the book The Storm Before the Storm. It's going to be a great turnout. I've already had some folks and listeners that I've met in the past reach out and say they're coming, so we're excited to see you there. Additionally, if you haven't signed up yet, we are taking part in this uh, new chat platform called Flick, Flick App, which is a proud sponsor of the Intelligent Speech Conference. It's a lot of fun because it gives y'all the opportunity to chat with us and us the opportunity to chat with y'all. So (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you'd do that. I was like, is he going to say y'all? He said it. Yeah, I did. Indeed. We'll have the, uh, the link to sign up for the Reconsider specific chat rooms on the show notes for this episode at reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. And then the last two bits, Patreon, Bucka Show is what we ask for. It's the Dan Carlin model. People keep giving, which is amazing. And I should probably start listing names, but I haven't yet. But thank you for everyone who donates. It lets us do things like fly to intelligent speech because we don't get paid for things like that. So, you know, it paid for our flights. It paid for our hotels. So thank you. You guys are amazing. It also paid for the stock of books, mugs, and t-shirts that are going to be there. So thank you again. And everyone who wants one of those can get one at Intelligent Speech. So patreon.com slash reconsider buck a show. And then finally, if you want to chat with us on other media platforms or just uh, kind of see the news that we like to share every now and then, social media is Facebook and Twitter at Reconsider Pod. So speaking of news... One of the big issues in the 2020 primary isn't just education generally, it's it's student debt, right? So student debt is a very large portion of, you know, the more recent generation's debt ratio than in previous generations. There's some intergenerational strife over this, but probably more importantly for this show, there are policy proposals about this. So let's dive into how American students get so much debt. So let's break down the costs between us and different countries. So the first question to ask is, you know, how, how much more are American students paying for school than their counterparts in other countries? And so for public university, the United States pays $8,200 per year. So that's $8,200. Private universities, we pay on average $21,000 per year. And other OECD countries, so the OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's basically the rich kids club. Many of them have fully subsidized education. Many of them do not. So in Chile, uh, it costs $7,600 per year. That's US dollars per year to go to university. $5,000 in Canada, $4,700 in uh, Australia. And uh, in the UK, with a mix of private and public, it's $12,000 US dollars per year. So there are some countries where it's a little bit less, and there's other countries where it's fully subsidized. So it's a lot less. You know, all of that above is for the student. It's not the total cost. There's nowhere where there are not costs associated with universities, Uh, just various amounts of subsidies by country and uh, various total costs per student by country. Both of these are variables that change. And so we got to ask how much of this is driven by subsidy versus total cost, because if the difference is just subsidy, then, you know, then the U.S. doesn't have a more expensive health or education system. The government just doesn't spend as much. But if there's a big gap, then, then you know, it's worth looking into what might be driving some of this higher total cost. Right now, if you factor in total costs borne by both families paying for their students' education 
and government subsidies and outlays, then the total in the U.S. per student is about thirty to thirty-five thousand per year for private institutions, which is twice the OECD average and less only than Luxembourg. Now, private institution costs have doubled and public costs have tripled since 1988, accounting for inflation. So it's it's definitely private institutions in the U.S. that are kind of running away with Bill on this one. Uh, public education in the U.S. is more expensive, but the difference for private institutions is much greater. So why is this? Now, one of the narratives that will get picked up is something along the lines of, well, greed and lack of government regulation and just like exorbitant spending without uh, you know, a focus on educational things like for athletic centers or nice dorms, things like that. So we decided to dive into this a little bit, relying actually fairly heavily on an article by The Atlantic, which did a bunch of research, some of, you know, some of which I kind of cherry picked to go, uh, to go validate on my own, and it looked pretty good. So uh, that's linked in the show notes. But as far as I could see from this and a little bit more poking around, there are two big buckets for why U.S. university education is much more expensive than that of other countries. One, U.S. students are far more likely to live on campus than overseas students. So overseas, you know, some of it's that a lot of people do college in country because it's, you know, subsidized and it's usually not all that far away. Many times the colleges are just or the countries are just smaller. So it's easier to be a day student, stuff like that. So and some of it may also just be the culture. Right. Just maybe a culture of, of U.S. students living on campus. And that's expensive. Right. So that's some of the money. But then uh, it also turns out that the vast majority of that spend per student goes towards staff and faculty. Right. So there are there are there is a lot of money spent on dorms, on you know fancy buildings, on nice campuses, on athletic centers. But the vast, vast majority of it just pays for people who staff the university. And the amount that that amount per student spent on st- faculty and staff is more than twice what Germany and Finland spend. So per student, just the num- just the the amount of money per student going towards humans that are working on the campus is less than half of the United States. And so we have to ask, who is all that faculty and staff? And you know, how why are we spending twice as much on faculty and staff for U.S. students? So one of the ways this breaks down is just total you know, salary per professor. Turns out U.S. professors just get paid much more than overseas professors. And there, but there's also a much larger operational and support staff. So notes the Atlantic, quote, fundraisers, athletic staff, lawyers, admissions and financial aid officers, diversity and inclusion managers, building operations and maintenance staff, security personnel, transportation workers, and food service workers, all numbers substantially higher, well, end quote, all numbers substantially higher in the United States, uh, universities than in overseas ones. And, you know, according to Bernie Sanders, many of these non-faculty staff, such as administrators, get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars per year to manage all this. I went and looked at MIT, which publishes this stuff openly. And at least at MIT, yes, there are administrators who are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. And so another quote from The Atlantic is, the United States or U.S. colleges spend more on non-teaching staff than on teachers, which is upside down compared with every other country that provided data to the OECD, with the exception, of course, of Luxembourg. So one, the United States is actually spending more on people who don't teach than on people who teach. So there's all these extra bodies there. It's also spending more on those people who don't teach. It is spending more on those people who teach. And finally, 
the U.S. also has the most non-teaching academic staff. So these are professors who mostly just do research. And so U.S. universities do crank out far more research, but they also have to pay for that somehow. So U.S. universities tend to be research universities much more so than their overseas counterparts. And re- turns out professors who are doing top research also either they, they cost more due to the market or they're just offered more. And then finally, it is the case that the United States has better student teacher ratios than overseas universities. So there are more teaching faculty per student. So we have more teaching faculty, more non-teaching faculty, more non-faculty staff, and everyone gets paid more in the U.S. than overseas. So that's where all that money is going. Now, all this adds up. And what's interesting is a lot of this spending correlates with criteria that publications like the Princeton Review use for ranking different colleges in the U.S. So U.S. colleges with lots of research staff and low student-teacher ratios tend to rank very well. They are, however, also the most expensive, with tuitions for some of these top-tier universities ranging from forty dollars to $60,000 per year. So while you can go to a lot of public institutions in the U.S. and save money for that education— and this also depends quite a bit by state, they tend to not rank as well as some of the most prestigious, or so to speak, prestigious private schools, which have higher ranks in these publications like the Princeton Review. So it's there's a market here, even though it's kind of a weird one. Colleges, the expensive ones, are nonprofit institutions. So they're not actually trying to extract more cash to put into the owners of the university like it were some sort of company. Instead, they're kind of competing for ranking here. They are incentivized by prestige because that gets higher tuition dollars, which lets them spend more on the things that gets them more prestige, like lower teacher-student ratios, like higher salaries in order to attract better researchers. So prices just go up and the cycle kind of continues. So one question we now have to ask is, okay, so we have all these private institutions in the U.S. that are far more expensive, and they have better student-teacher ratios. They have, you know, the kind of the top faculty because they're getting paid the most. They have great campuses. They have lots of research faculty, which means where I went to school, you know, there are all these research opportunities. So is it worth it, right? Is it, maybe is it such a bad thing that U.S. universities are far more expensive? So that's that's a story for another time. I'm going to say, we're going to say it's tough to say right now because we haven't done particularly strong research on it. And it probably depends. There's probably expensive universities that have, and if we, we're just thinking economics here, right? I, I know a lot of people, they say like, oh, college is about growing up and yada, yada. But but let's talk about we're, we're spending cash on this. So it's an investment. Does it turn into more cash in the right way? Right? Because we're talking about a debt crisis. And so there, there are probably some universities where, you know, your likely commiserate increase in future income more than pays off for it. And there are probably some that super don't and a lot in between don't know right now. So if we do a bottom up approach rather than a top down approach, you know, does a do higher prestige staff mean actually a better education? Do lower teacher student ratios mean a better education? And right now we don't know. I'm sure someone's done this research and we couldn't find it easily. Uh, We might have to do a lot more of our own. But it is also the case that the average American student with very high student debt is not making tremendously more than the average German or average Finn or average Norwegian. 
they're probably making a lot more than say the average Chilean. But of course, we start looking, you know, when we start looking at these incomes generally, there's so many different factors about the the economy, the relative economies as a whole that play into this, that we'd have to put in a lot of controls to the experiment. So we just don't know. And ideally, you know, we would be able to provide a level of education that has an impact on people's, you know, a positive impact on people's income later, if they're going to be spending money on it, that doesn't burden people with, you know, very high student debt ratios. So, or student debt levels. So let's just go back and focus on the student debt levels and say, probably people would be agreed that we don't want them to be crippling, right? So can we fix it? Can we actually bring down student debt levels? And also, can we just bring down the total cost of education in the United States? So um, we look to some other countries, and it turns out very few of them have laws in place that fix tuition for private institutions. For public institutions, there are countries that have that just say how much they're going to pay per student, and that's just that's just it. In the United Kingdom, they actually do just cap in tuition. So if you're going to be charging tuition, uh, except for some exceptions, so there's some exceptional schools that I think don't get any government support that they can charge what they want. So like Oxford turns out it's very expensive, but uh, if they're getting any government support, there's a cap on tuition. And it may be the case that this forces colleges to be leaner. And it also, uh, if you had a cap on tuition, it would put some guardrails around the race to the top for, for prestige, right? Because, you know, the, the race to the top for prestige is a zero-sum game, right? There can only be number one. And so if you're all forced to spend less to try to get to the top, then total costs are going to go down, but someone's still number one. So if everyone's competing with some limited set of cash, you know, they, they might be able to take the zero-sum game and keep it from turning into an arms race. So, you know, that is one potential way to fix it. What we need to look at now is what are the actual proposals on the table at the moment, um, as of June 2019, going into this 2020 race about, you know, lowering the cost to students for college. Are we talking about guardrails that bring down the total cost or are we talking about shifting that cost to other places? Now, as far as we can tell, Bernie Sanders' plan is to just have the government foot the cost, which is about $70 billion per year for everyone whose parents make less than 125000 per year and raise the revenue in order to fund that subsidy by increasing taxes on Wall Street. And that tax on Wall Street, it's a tax, I believe, on trades. So it's called a speculation tax, which is a great, great name, by the way, as far as political points. But yeah, it's a, it would be a tax on, on trading on Wall Street. And then the other thought I had about it was, was I can't tell if there's a sliding scale. So if you make above 125K, you know, do you get some subsidy or none? Because otherwise, suddenly making $124,000 a year, if you have a teen thinking about going to college, suddenly looks very juicy. Right. And in terms of pre-existing student debt, Sanders wants to help students refinance loans at lower interest rates. And another Democratic Party frontrunner, Elizabeth Warren, wants to spend about one and a quarter trillion on a plan which would cancel pre-existing debt for everyone, every graduate who makes less than 50000 a year and then scale down this amount of debt reduction up to the point of $250,000 where you'd get no student debt forgiveness past two fifty. So that would be a sliding scale. And she also wants to make public education entirely free which, by the way, it, it already is in about 17 states for residents of those states. She would plan to pay for these debt forgiveness programs with common theme, 
incremental tax on ultra millionaires, quote unquote, ultra millionaires, very wealthy people. A Business Insider article we came across and which we'll post in the show notes, again, at reconsidermedia.com, seems to agree that there aren't any real cost guardrails here to help prevent the bill and the spending associated with the bill from going up over time. But that also might just be because those details aren't yet available on candidates' websites. We're still pretty early in the, in the um, election cycle so far. Yeah. So what we're seeing so far is a solution by shifting the burden rather than working on cost. You know, don't know if this is going to change going into the next year. And in particular, you know, is it going to change if this becomes more popular in Congress or, or you know, someone who wants free college is going to get elected? You know, is this going to change as the rubber hits the road to try to find the budget for it, et cetera? Uh, we shall see. But those seem to be the plan so far is, is you know, is shift, shift the cost to the wealthy as opposed to you know, as, as opposed to try to bring total costs down. So let's look at healthcare as well. So healthcare is the other place we have uh, a lot of debt in the United States. Uh, it's free in a lot of countries, um, much more often than education. And so uh, in a way, it also sounds, you know, it sounds great. Like you would have a, if, if people didn't have healthcare debt, their, their lives would be a lot better. And what's interesting is the cost ratios for healthcare in the US are much like the cost ratios for college in the US. So the U.S. is spending about two to three times its OECD peers. In, the 20, in 2017, the United States was spent $3.2 trillion on total health expenditure. This is upwards of 15% of the entire economy. And that percentage of GDP that is going to healthcare is projected to increase substantially over the next 20 years. So it's just going to keep going up at a pace of 5.6% per year. So obviously substantially faster than inflation. A lot of people call it a crisis. Uh, it's certainly something that we, you know, cer- certainly a, an area that affects a lot of people's lives and, and is a very big chunk of money in the economy. And obviously there's a lot of thinking going around of, well, could we make this cheaper or could we at least shift the burden from the people consuming healthcare to people with more cash? And if we could get that spending down to more, to more average levels in the OECD, we'd be looking at savings of, you know, upwards of a trillion and a half per year, which is, you know, you know, well above, for example, the deficit each year, et cetera. So there's a lot of money that could be saved if we were able to bring those costs down. And that's, that was one of the objectives of the Affordable Care Act, note the affordable part, et cetera. So due to the you know, due to the staggering costs here, um, as of 2018, 70% of Americans would be interested in a Medicare for all system. So we've got a link to that, that uh, poll in the show notes. And I actually wrote a blog post back in the day about all this. And it seems that some of the belief or some of the, the desire for a Medicare for all system is that, look, there's a strong correlation between countries that uh, subsidize all of healthcare and have much lower healthcare costs. You know, for example, in the United Kingdom, which is one of the cheapest per person in the OECD, the total cost per person is one third that of the United States. And in fact, if we could bring total healthcare costs in the United States down to that of the UK, we could actually pay for everyone's healthcare using the current Medicare and Medicaid budget. Well, Medicare, Medicaid plus other subsidies, federal healthcare budget. So we would actually not have to spend any more. The federal government would have to spend like not a dime more in order to totally subsidize. U.S. healthcare if the health costs per person were as low as the U.K. So 
could we could we do that right what would a medicare for all or or you know totally subsidized healthcare system in the united states look like perhaps unsurprisingly estimates for what these sorts of things cost vary wildly and as with many things in the realm of budget planning it can be pretty hard to drill down on which hypothetical exactly would actually come to fruition if some if a, a new large scale proposal like this were to be introduced that really radically reconfigures a lot about american healthcare so just for the sake of an example even though there are a number of different plans a number of different conceptions for what universal healthcare could or should look like we're just going to take a look at Bernie Sanders' plan, just because Sanders is a name brand, so people will be familiar with him. But this is just an example of sort of how those estimates vary, right? So in 2017, Sanders proposed a Medicare for All plan that he estimated would cost about $1.4 trillion annually on top of existing Medicare, Medicaid, and other government health spending, which is already at about $1.4 trillion. So $1.4 plus $1.4, that gets you to $2.8 trillion in spending. Now, so that $2.8 trillion if you compare that to current total health spending in the US, which is private and public, it's about 3.2 trillion. So 2.8 trillion, Sanders' plan, according to his numbers, would actually represent about a 15% decrease in spending, 15% in savings per year. However, if you look at another think tank that does a lot of budgetary policy analysis, the Urban Institute, which, and we've actually interviewed a couple of folks from the Urban Institute and considered them to be high quality and generally pretty biased free source of information, good analysis overall. They estimate that the plan would cost up to $2.5 trillion a year on top of $1.4 trillion. So that would actually be an increase. It would be $3.9 trillion total compared to $3.2 trillion in current spending. So that just gives you a sense of how even with one plan, you look at a couple of different sources and estimates vary quite a bit. So the other healthcare plan we can dig into a little bit right here is Elizabeth Warren. There are, of course, many Democratic candidates, some of whom with you know not much of a fleshed out healthcare plan, some of whom are not advocating for fully universal healthcare, some which probably have a very fleshed out plan, and we're just ignoring them. and And I apologize, but and Warren's plan reflects a House bill that was introduced recently called ACA 2.0, or nicknamed ACA 2.0, so Affordable Care Act 2.0. And it is much more of a change to the Affordable Care Act. It's much more about trying to build a, a system around the current market system uh, that is going to change, you know, uh, it's going to change how, how costs are handled. So a few key points out of this. So one, it would limit insurance premiums to no more than 8.5% of the income of the, you know, of the person buying the insurance. It would cap out-of-pocket prescription drug costs for those on private plans to $250 a month per person or $500 per family. It would require insurers who sell Medicare Advantage or Medicaid managed care plans to offer coverage on ACA exchanges that have limited competition. It would require private insurance plans to spend 85% of premiums they receive on paying out claims up from 80% under the ACA currently. It would set limits on insurance company profits to match what those private insurers can earn from Medicare and Medicaid. And it would provide more money for the ACA outreach and enrollment efforts. So it'd be much more about taking the ACA, which was designed to actually operate a lot, a lot like the Dutch system. And the Dutch system is one of those that the costs are actually much lower. So it's designed to make the ACA move, as far as I can tell, move closer to that Dutch system um, where you have guardrails on a market 
and then otherwise let the market, you know, let let people make choice about what they want to buy with some limitations such that they, you know, such that caps or costs are capped and limited. Now, as we go into the 2020 election cycle, it's just there's just something worth remembering, I think, which is you know, remember the last time in 2016 or the time before that in 2012 when your favorite guy or gal told you, you know, all of these lofty campaign promises that probably didn't come true either because they didn't win the election or they did win the election and it's just much easier to make campaign promises than to actually follow through on them. Probably worth keeping in mind as you move into the next one. It's always helpful to think about the viability of the policy, both in terms of spending and the domestic political scene as opposed to just how our guts react to it. And I think it's very normal for us to react emotionally to campaign promises and policies that appeal to a pet issue of ours one way or another, because otherwise it wouldn't be a pet issue of ours. But just because we want something strongly, like wishing for it really hard doesn't always make it possible. And there are always, of course, unintended consequences with big, big policy redesigns. And that doesn't often get discussed in like neutral rhetoric and in, in when someone's trying to win an election, right? So just keep in mind that there are all these extremely high paid campaign consultants that are beginning to gear up their, their marketing campaigns for their candidates in multiple mediums, many of which you probably interact with, some you probably don't. And like their specialty is designing either policy proposals or, red or rhetoric that like purposefully evokes an emotional response one way or another, either to get people out to vote or to get them to dislike one candidate or another. So spoons of salt. <laughs> spoons of salt. I like it. I mean, and so as as we're looking at this, I think one of the things we need to ask ourselves is, well, even in Sanders's own calculations, why the heck isn't something like a Medicare for all system going to bring the costs or planned projected to bring the costs of U.S. healthcare in line with that of the OECD, right? Why can't we just move to Medicare for all and, and then have healthcare costs like the U.K. at one third or at least like Germany at half of what we're paying here? And again, we haven't done enough research to actually know. And, and a lot of people have, have been working on this. And this is also a place where, where the short answers I've seen vary wildly. But there are a few things to keep in mind about this. One is that the, a common belief about universal health care is that the government has more buying power and therefore you know, can drive costs down. Right? That's what happens when, when you're a big buyer. You can drive costs down. We see Walmart and Amazon doing this to manufacturers all the time. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But it's worth noting, and we've talked about this in a previous episode, so I'll keep it, I'll keep it short, that a lot of U.S. healthcare buyers, which are private insurance companies, are already so gigantic that they already have very big buying power. You know, the U.S. government would be even bigger, but a number of our health insurers, including the biggest United Healthcare, are bigger in terms of number of consu- health consumers that they cover than many countries in Europe, right? When we're talking about the buying power of a group, United Healthcare is a much, has much more buying power than the Czech Republic or Norway or Finland. It's just huge. And therefore, it's not, you know, Finland doesn't pay less for healthcare because it has more buying power than a U.S. private insurer, right? Because it, it's just a smaller buyer. So that thing that people, I think that thing that people are looking for, where they say, ah, oh, well, if a bigger buyer will have substantially more buying power, it's not going to have as big an effect as you might think. Presumably, an even bigger buyer, the U.S. government, would have, would have some buying power there. Another one is that U.S. doctors, administrators, et cetera, all get paid a lot more. So unless you have the government actually running healthcare and telling people what they need to get paid and making all these decisions, or at least regulate these costs in aggressive ways, you're not going to see savings there. Much like with the U.S. education system, you have many, many more staff per patient, just like staff per student, in particular non-doctor staff, than you do in Europe. There's a lot of administrative bloat. One of the beliefs currently is that you know, the insurance system causes this. And so, and that may be where we're seeing a lot of the proposed savings or projected savings um, is getting rid of a lot of this administrative system. When I've done my own research on where's the money going besides doctor's pockets, I know a lot of people blame insurance companies. So you take them out. Turns out their profit levels are pretty low. It's like 3%, which uh, if you think about it is, is pretty tiny compared to most industries. Now, if you get rid of insurance companies, you get rid of all those people. So you get rid of some of those costs, but then you add a lot of those people into the federal government, You know, maybe not as many, but you need, still need to have a bunch. Turns out if we think of the profit, the big profit margins in the US, of course, go to drug companies and device companies. They manage to sell their products for quite a lot of money. So it looks like a lot of these plans don't have you know, particularly aggressive cost controls on that. And if they did, they might save a lot more money. And then the last part is it maybe it's entirely possible that Americans are just substantially unhealthier. And so it's just going to cost more to take care of them. So for example, Americans are obese and being obese is expensive. They're not obese at all because of the healthcare system. Like the healthcare system doesn't make them obese. Their lifestyle makes them obese, what they eat. Healthy people cost more to be taken care of. And this is especially true when they get old. 
So one of the things we actually, what I actually looked at was healthcare costs for by age group. And it turns out by age group, the U.S. still spends more than other countries, but well under twice as much of the OECD. But when we start looking at older and older age groups, we're spending five to nine times more as much. And because older people consume far more healthcare, so this, this group highly, highly skews the costs. So if we're thinking about actually problem solving this, a big, a big issue that we're running into is that you know, the elderly just, just consume tons and tons of very, very expensive healthcare. And you know, a lot of that cost is actually borne by Medicare and Medicaid, which is in part why the U.S. federal government already spends as much per total person in the United States. The U.S. government spends as much as the United Kingdom spends per total person, even though the U.S. is only paying for Medicare and Medicaid. So, and therefore, I think when we're thinking about how do we get these costs under control, obviously what, part of what we need to do is figure out with a little more nuance, what are the drivers of these particular you know, cost buckets? What are the drivers behind where we're seeing that money actually flow to? As opposed to just say, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's potentially, let's, if we paper this over with a universal system, the cost will just go down. That will just happen. I'm not necessarily saying a universal system is wrong, but if people are expecting that, you know, for example, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan is just going to drive costs down because it's what other countries with lower costs do. Um, turns out like no reputable group, including Sanders's campaign itself, is assuming that that's actually going to happen. Now, there's another thing, sort of another aspect of social program spending that I want to loop in here, and it's, it's taking a little bit of a different tack. But there's this term that I've been playing with lately, Eric. It's called narrative isolation. Ah, Yes. And it's going to play a big role in the talk that I give at the Intelligent Speech Conference. So be sure to come out for that. Now, the idea here is a lot of times people who advocate for fully subsidized healthcare spending in the U.S. will say things like, oh, well, every other developed country in the world can afford it, which means that the U.S. can too. And that frames the issue as sort of like a lack of will. We just haven't wanted it badly enough. So... Interestingly, um, as we've kind of discussed in, in the show so far, the U.S. spends uh, more than many other European countries per capita because healthcare is just so expensive here. So if we wanted to take on the whole making healthcare free thing without sort of a clear line of sight as to how we actually get cheaper health care, then we're talking about a larger chunk of government, government revenues, government spending rather, going towards healthcare. So what this what a, what a lot of this narrative basically fails to take into consideration is how other countries are using their government budgets, what they're spending money on, what other things they're spending money on. So there's this trade-off between things like defense and things like healthcare. And in the case of Europe, Europe has not really spent that much on defense since the end of World War II. And I'll come back and I'll caveat that in a little, in a little bit. But basically, in 1945, Europe was just destroyed. And the U.S. implemented programs like the Marshall Plan to help build Europe back up. It, it was a lot of development dollars. But sort of in exchange for this, the U.S. guaranteed Europe security against the Soviet Union. And while the Soviet Union no longer exists, the U.S. through NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is still providing the majority of defense dollars to uh, Europe. It's something like 
51% of NATO's GDP. So if you add up all the GDPs of all the countries that are in NATO, 51% is the US, but the US accounts for 72% of spending. So the vast majority of NATO spending dollars of defense for Europe is actually coming from the US. So the US has been subsidizing Europe's defense spending basically since the end of World War II. And several times now, NATO has committed to increase their defense spending to a certain threshold, which is 2% of total GDP. And this basically has just really not been a successful plan. Uh, They've been trying to do it for decades now, and only a handful of countries have actually met their NATO commitment so far. Yeah, that handful is seven out of 29 NATO countries, and it currently includes the United States, United Kingdom, Greece, Estonia, Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania. Four of those, Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, are right are right next to Russia, and they also only hit that target this year. Interestingly, this happens to correlate with a lot of pressure from President Trump to get NATO nations to spend their 2% that they've been pledging for decades. So those four hit it this year, but uh, before that, as of last year, only the United States, United Kingdom, and Greece had hit that 2% that they pledged. And Greece may be a surprise, but it's worth noting that Greece is actually very fearful of Turkey geopolitically. They have a very long adversarial relationship with a history of conflict. Turkey, you know, less than a century ago, forced mass repopulation of Greeks out of Anatolia, um, out, out of what is now Turkey. You know, uh, genocide is a word that gets thrown around related to that. A lot of Greeks died. Uh, it was it was gnarly. And then, of course, before that, you know, they were dominated by Turkey for hundreds of years after, you know, the fall of Byzantium in, in uh, the 1400s. So, Greece maybe Greece has spent a lot of money for a very long time because of that. Interestingly, probably more out of fear of a NATO ally than of Russia itself. But so what this means is that, you know, the United States is still massively subsidizing European defense with its own budget. And and we've, you know, if you listen to us a lot, there's a US interest, there's a strong US interest in kind of having a hand over Europe as well. It's a it's a geopolitical imperative that nobody in Europe get too strong. And that includes and has since the 20th century preventing the Soviet Union from taking over all of Europe. That has been a geopolitical imperative. The U.S. has spent a gobload of money on it. But either way, because the United States is doing that and willing to do that, it means that, you know, Europeans can consistently spend less on defense, knowing that the United States will come to their aid if there's a real problem. So, for example, Germany spends 1.2 percent of its GDP. France spends 1.8 percent of its GDP on defense. And these don't seem like massive numbers, but when we're talking about, you know, nearly a whole percent of your entire economy that you're not spending on defense, it means that you can spend more on domestic, you know, welfare programs or domestic entitlements and subsidies. So the point is, it's not quite an apples to apples comparison, you know, between the United States will to spend on domestic programs versus the Europeans will to spend on domestic programs for two reasons. One of them is that, you know, the Europeans have their defense, which is a which is a critical need for, you know, nations across the world, have their defense highly subsidized by the United States. And the other, of course, being that the United States costs are much higher. And it's not obvious that, you know, having the federal government spend that money would bring those costs down. So we have to we have to we would have to spend more to to do the same, a lot more. And we don't have quite as much money as a percent of our economy to do it due to the subsidy. So if the European, you know, if the U.S. did withdraw 
from NATO. The U.S. did decide, you know what, you guys are on your own. Probably won't happen for quite a while. If the U.S. were to withdraw from NATO or if the U.S. were to become much more isolated, to turn inward or to otherwise say, you know what, Russia, like have fun, you know, have fun in in Europe. It's not our problem anymore. A lot of bad things might happen. But one of the things that European countries would have to immediately do is start reprioritizing how they spend a limited budget. They would have to start thinking about, you know, hey, do we need to increase our security? Do we need to prepare ourselves for invasion from our neighbors, including Russia? And if so, where are we going to cut that money? Like, where are we going to, you know, we're going to make those cuts. What's going to go? And because domestic programs, both in the United States and by domestic programs, I mean like entitlement spending, free healthcare, free money, free housing, free other things. These entitlements make up the vast, vast majority of budgets in the U.S., but particularly in Europe. That would be the place that those cuts would have to come from. And the third thing that would actually make this hard on Europe is that Europe already has a much higher tax rate than the United States. And therefore, just saying, oh, we'll just raise taxes to make up the difference is also going to get increasingly difficult. There's just less room, right? There's just less, you know, there's, there's less of, of labor or owner pockets that you, can, that you can take from in order to pay for both your, you know, domestic programs and your your defense programs. So Europe would be in much more of a pinch about how it would have to make decisions about how it spends its money. And I think with that, we're going to lead into our reconsider moment for the episode. Now, thinking about this trade-off between spending both social programs versus defense, but also importantly, discretionary versus mandatory, things that are already locked into the budget. Let's keep that in mind. But I'm going to harken back to an early Reconsider episode, one we did way, way back in the day called The Stephanie Experiment. And in it, we interviewed um, Eric's friend, who self-identified as sort of a left-leaning individual and spent, I think it was a month, right, listening only to Fox News and other conservative outlets? Yes. Uh, Right? Yeah, it was a month. And in that episode, we all kind of collectively coined this term context shift that has kept coming back. And I'm going to give you an idea for thinking about a context shift as we head into this next presidential election cycle. And just as a way to sort of like kind of poke and test some of the assumptions that are just going to be kind of flying around and maybe not as well vetted. So there's another really good Urban Institute article and we'll put the link up, but basically it discusses a context shift about how to think about the U S budget. And the basic takeaway is Americans tend to think about the budget from one year to next. So defense spending increased by X percent or decreased by Y percent and social security spending increased by X percent or decreased by Y percent. And so we're in this mindset of thinking about annual changes. But what the author advocates is that this is basically not a great way to think about the budget because so much of the increase that's going to occur over the course of the next decade is already locked in by law and extremely difficult to change. It's very hard to change mandatory spending programs that by law the government is required to spend money on. So this author basically proposes a context shift, although he doesn't use the phrase. We love the phrase, where he suggests Americans consider thinking about what areas in the budget are actually flexible, what's left that can give, because much can't. And if interest rates were to go up, that would increase debt service costs and further decrease the flexibility that does exist in the discretionary portion of the budget. So this kind of plays into the whole mandatory discretionary bit as well as social spending versus defense. And it's just another example of how, despite the rhetoric, 
sometimes the options are more constrained than they're presented. And the conversation we need to be having is a little bit more specific. So that's your reconsider moment for the day. Thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we these are these are going to become, I think, some contentious topics that come up in the next year and a half, and I'm sure we'll be engaging with them more. But in the meantime, thanks for listening to Reconsider. Be sure to check us out at the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York, June 29th. I am Xander signing off. Yeah, we'll see you guys in a few weeks, hopefully. This is Eric signing off. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.